what you know about it. It's the stew, baby. Got the knees and blast. Young stew, baby. And there's room a lot. Hello, hello. We're listening to The Stew. I'm Jason Stewart. Andre Conaparo, say hello. Hello. We, uh, we have not done a podcast in a while. Summer break, baby. We had a little summer break. Just, you know, we had to fire some people in the office. Yep. Um, really cleared house. We, we bloodbath. We had to... <laughs> it was a freaking bloodbath. But we, we are back, and thank you for... Um, we want to thank all our lawyers who have been helping us through all this... Red tape. All the red tape, all the uh, human resources nightmare and impending lawsuits we have for... Shit is expensive. It adds up. Wrongful firing, but, you know, we'll see. We'll get through it. <laughs> we, uh, we have one guest, Miles Thompson. Hey, Miles. Hello. How Thanks are for, you? Thanks for What's coming, up, buddy. Bud? Miles, uh... <laughs> we got if, good energy Saturday morning, baby. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Miles is the, uh... Well, we have a whole long story to tell of Miles... Miles' journey to Full where one. he's at. But, you know, he's just a James Beard rising star. He's just a... He's just a young chef who's dar- already done more cooking in his lifetime than most people who are... Three times his age, I would say. <laughs> yep. What, yeah, you started, you started cooking when you were, what, 13? Yes, like I, I started working as a dishwasher when I was 13 years old. That's illegal, them. right? Well, I was, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was. Very illegal. It was, what it country was, was this in? Uh, this was in um, the United States um, mm. of, of another country that is not the United States of America. <laughs> um, I just don't want to throw them under the bus. But uh, no, I, I was. Some states, it was, it was more of a. I started working for this company, and it was not, I wouldn't say like charity, but it was like an offering. Like, you can work for us, we'll pay you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly feel, after having done it for so long, I ended up working for them for six years. Yeah. I felt like they thought, you know, you're young, you probably want to do this, we'll compensate you, you know, under the table. Mm-hmm. And then you're probably going to quit because you're a 13 year old kid. Yeah. You know, I ended up working for them till I was 19. Yeah. So I didn't quit. Mm-hmm. And then, like, when everything was, Right, I got paid with the paycheck, um, but yeah, I started started there. So when Uncle Sam started getting a taste, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know. God damn but it. I think like that's an example of you know like smaller towns and smaller businesses. It's like that that's so much more natural and, mm-hmm. and makes so much more sense because, like you said, you may quit right away, but they also may end up with an employee who actually is invested in the place and cares about it and works there for six years and becomes like part of the DNA. And, right. and gone are the days where you can do that kind of thing. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's a sad thing. And that's also because sometimes those, those rules exist because people are exploited. But yeah. the, the very like, sincere innocence of like, hey, you're a young kid, probably wants a pocket change. If you don't like this, you'll quit. doesn't matter. But what, you're, come check mm-hmm. it out. And I mean, I think that's, like, that's a thing that doesn't happen anymore as often as it should. Yeah, because if you're if you're the if you're running a, a an intense kitchen and some little thirteen year old boy comes in here, you're thinking like, I don't know if you want this life, bro. Yeah, and you're like, no, I'm down. I want to work. And you're like, well, you well. make them do coke before they start <laughs> and see if they're really. Yeah, it's like gotta, testing a cop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you have to tell me you want to do these dishes. Do this. Mm-hmm. That's and, what happened, right? At thirteen. It was, it was New York. I played the fifth. Yeah, there you go. See? Yeah. No. See, I know how it works. But it was a good way to learn that you had, you had what, it, what it took to start slicing those rutabagas. Yeah, I mean, I think that it all, you know, everyone always tells you about these stories of opportunity where you're like, oh, I was working as a dishwasher. One day the salad guy didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's literally what happened. Yeah. In my I didn't even want to audition for Mission Impossible. My friend dragged me there, and I guess I got the part. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. The Selena premiere, you know, they came through my mall, and then, you know, and then there it was, and then I was in Selena. We need more um, Selena references on this podcast. Very good. Next week, all Selena. Yeah, um, yeah and you, you do hear those stories all the time, mm-hmm. and that did not happen to you because you worked there for six years. Right. I mean, I started, basically, the way I started handling food was they were understaffed by someone, and, you know, they wanted to start past appetizers earlier, and... 
like, okay, you need to put this shallot butter on this pumpernickel bread, and then the next thing you do is you put the salmon on, and then, okay, now, can you, can you handle that? I need to do something else. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm ready to go. You know, yeah. I've been washing dishes for, like, two years here. Like, I want to make some, I mean, I got to eat the food, but I never, like, got to touch and prepare it. <laughs> And so then you've never felt the the smooth caress of a of a shallot butter in your hand. I I didn't even know shallot butter was a thing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know until and today. This was a long time ago. Yeah, it was you know fifteen Descri- years ago. I think this story is so cool. What was the restaurant like? And then I got follow up. Yeah, so th- this was upstate New York. This was in yeah. This was in um, the catering company was out of New York State. Fancy and pants one. Kind of a granola y a little bit, maybe. Not the granola y one. Not, not the. I mean, it was a nice area, mm-hmm. um, but the woman who ran the catering company was like very down to earth, very real. Like she prepped everything. She had a, a kitchen in her basement and did everything there. You know, it was not like country club kind of thing. It was mm-hmm. real soulful cooking. Mm-hmm. And it was hired by people who wanted to do, you know, weddings, bar mitzvahs, funerals, things like that. But it was mm-hmm. not. Hoity-toity. Like, mm-hmm. everything was proper, well-sourced kind of thing. Great. What, what was your first day like? Was there a point where you're like, oh, I don't want to do this, but you did it anyways? Or did you feel kind of that it fit right away? I don't remember begrudgingly doing anything at that time. I mean, I yeah. think you, as time goes on, there's, there's waves. You know, there's certain days where I remember there being a period of time in my life where I was like, oh, man, I just don't, I just don't want to peel garlic <laughs> yeah. i just don't want to peel garlic today but me last night yeah and like i still when i cook at home like i i i I've, we peel garlic at the restaurant in yeah. bulk you know we yeah. soak it in water and we peel it and yeah. cut the bottom off and everything but there's sometimes when i'm cooking home and i'm just like i really want to like nicely slice a whole head of garlic but i'm just gonna smash it and yeah. like do that you know yeah, yeah, yeah sure but um no definitely not at that point in time yeah. yeah not in the beginning i mean i think part of it comes from there's like levels of maturity you go through as a cook where you're like, when you, when you become a line cook and then you have that line cook swag, you're like, I don't do that. And then you become a sous chef and you're like, I do everything again. You know? And then you become an executive chef and you're like, I do everything and paperwork and I help with payroll. And oh my God, I have to go to the store now because we don't have salt. How did that happen? You know, I order like, and do food costs. I don't yeah, want to. Yeah. It's like, I do all this stuff and like, it's all interesting when you have the time. Like, I think food costing is fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, like, when you, when you take, like, okay, we weigh all of our vinegar. We know all of our recipes are in grams. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like we know how much the jar of mustard is, and then we use 17 grams of that, take it off of the, you know, nine-pound tub. You do add that in. How much does it cost? And, like, the, the Excel matrix is actually kind of fascinating to me. You're doing some beautiful mind shit in the kitchen, aren't you? Oh, man. You, There's just numbers and yeah, Numbers yeah, and yeah. photographs and pieces of twine touching everything. Yeah. I feel like having, a, having an interest for that world of, of being an executive chef, like the, the food costs and running the numbers in the spreadsheets mm-hmm. is such a valuable asset to a restaurant owner because a lot of people do not like doing that or they're forced to learn and enjoy that process. Well, I'll be honest. I, I don't love counting every single thing we need to do to do inventory. Right. I, mean, I don't think. I think you, you, if you follow chefs on Instagram, end of the month, it's always like there's these like funny memes of taking inventory, where they're just like a, a, a distraught person sitting at a computer, like <laughs> inventory time again. Because I mean, think about a 200 seat restaurant. Just how much, how many types of flour you have, and you have to weigh all of them, and yep. all of your salt and your spices and your meat, and it's like. I go around the clipboard and count 17 pages worth of tiny boxes. <laughs> That's not my favorite part. But I like the, I that like For the like record, a, that is not my favorite part. F- <laughs> says Miles. Fucking nightmare. That's, I would that's not like a do day. That. That's like I would a, just be like, fuck no. He's like, yeah, Weighing what? salt. Yeah. Isn't there a 13 year old dishwasher we can get to do this? Yeah, yeah where's that? Where's that guy? A big ass box of salt costs five bucks. Just buy another one. Fuck mm. it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, but I, I think that how, how long into the future do you think the the foodie cooking at home culinary world will catch up and start doing everything weighed by weight and not by volume? Well, it's it's because um, I see it happening more. Yeah, I think you know it's funny when I started stu- like studying cooking and pretty intensely and uh, reading more books and watching more 
shows like PBS, Food Network back in the day, mm-hmm. they would always say, well, in baking, you have to weigh everything out, mm-hmm. you know, because it's more precise. Like a cup like that, you scoop it up very gently or you scoop it firmly, a flour is going to be different. Mm-hmm. But if it's 232 grams, it's never going to change. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just so interesting that... And then your fucked up brain can really latch onto that, right? Yeah, exactly. It's never going to change. It's never going to change. <laughs> um, but the, uh, with food, like it makes a lot of sense... I mean, there's going to be variance in like the spiciness and strength of your garlic, or you know how hot a chili is, or how strong an onion is. Yeah. But for example, yeah, I mean, a, a one man's pinch of salt is a lot different than another man's pinch of right. salt. Right, one large onion is you know huge if uh-huh. you're in like Vidalia, yeah. and it's like the size of your fist if you're in you know a drier climate. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, to be to say it's like 400 grams, you know, you know exactly how much it's going to yeah. be. Um, I hope that it gets. Like that because for the sake of writing recipes and sharing recipes, it makes sense. Like I got my mom using a scale. Mm. You know, she makes stuff with a scale at home, and she's like, "This is so easy. I don't have to like find the tablespoon." And like, mom's got the triple beam. Mom's I got the it. triple beam. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but when you also when you weigh stuff, then you have to like have the little con- something like weighing out honey and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, that's. that's- Whenever it's, it's so time. funny that you say that because that's <laughs> such a nightmare. Somehow uh-huh. honey's worse than like molasses or anything else sticky. Like uh-huh. trying to weigh out honey is just honey's the worst one. That's why yeah, honey's the worst one. That's if, what, that's we eyeball honey on this side. If you yeah. ke- that's why like there's that whenever you can actually get like your mixing bowl or your pot before before it's hot if you can like get that on the scale and then just mm. pour into that yeah. you're just like why is this making me so happy to pour honey into this bowl that I don't have to scrape after mm-hmm. after I've used it yeah because yeah, I mean, you get the honey and then you get your little rubber spatula and you're like oh I got it all out but then now there's it's 18 stuck. grams of yeah. honey on my spatula then I have to use the spoon to get off of that and then there's some of that Ooh, triggered I mean First this, and now what? Bees are going to be extinct in a year, and now we're not going to have any honey? honey. That's a whole other podcast. Wasted so much honey just trying to cram it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, yeah, this would never happen with agave. So so That's going extinct, too. (laughs) Is it really? There's a a shortage. Um, I was talking to our bar manager. She said at the beginning, the numbers are what I remember. I'm sure they're incorrect. But she said at the beginning. breaking news. In the beginning of the year... Like a truck of agave was nine thousand dollars, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. But but by the end of the year, it was twenty three thousand dollars, because it's, like you see the hip tequila. Are these all from mezcal. the Trump tariffs, or is this just because? Yeah. It's because because like mezcal and tequila is like the yeah. drink now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like we have no problem producing corn in this country to make whiskey and right. stuff right. like that. Like yeah, they can't make you can't you tequila can't fast it. enough. You can't grow. It's a wild plant. Yeah, you know, it's like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you're like wild blueberry wine, like eventually, if wild blueberry wine catches on, watch out, Massachusetts. Blueberries it's, going up. Yeah, you know. wild blueberry wine. Is that, <laughs> I don't know. If that's even a thing. But. That's the two, that's the drink of 2019. You yeah, yeah, yeah. First, too. Wild blueberry wine. Yeah, Maine. We're coming for who the fuck blueberries. drinks grape wine? Ugh. Oh, blueberries, so baby. Gross. So yeah, so those those big ass agave plants that they're chopping down yeah. south of the border. Yeah. We also use all that now, thanks to Erwan and all that bullshit, everyone's squeezing agave. Yeah. And then you got Don Julio over here, like, bro, I need all of this. Yeah. And it's also that it has to be made, you know, not like Sotol and, and Mezcal can be made in other places, but mm-hmm. tequila has to be made in tequila. Yeah. So, like, even I don't, I don't know, I don't want to say things I don't really know about, but it's just crazy how. We are depleting resources so heavily. Mm-hmm. And that's why when we source stuff at the restaurant, we really focus on, you know, people who dry farm, biodynamically farm, organically farm, so that at least they're giving back mm-hmm. to their land so they're not just ripping it up. Like, we had a potato dish on the menu for a long time. We would only use these dry farm potatoes from Sierra Foothills. Mm. And uh, James, the farmer, said, we're not going to have potatoes for a year and a half because... If you know anything about growing potatoes, which I know very little about, but he explained to me. I know everything. It, yeah. So he doesn't he, know anything about it, so please keep it, talking. It, like, rips up the ground. Like, and if you it leave, fucks it up. Yeah, if you, if you leave the potatoes in, they'll, they'll get blight. That's what happens, you know. They'll get screwed up over time. You have to crop rotate. Mm-hmm. And so he rotated them through all of his crops, and then 
he needs to replenish the land. Eventually has a few seasons with no potatoes. No potatoes. I mean, they're the best potatoes I've ever had in my life. Wow. It's one of those, like, snobby things where I'm like, I'm just not going to use other potatoes. But now we've found a a different potato for a different application. Pandora's box. Can't go back. Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't think it's a snobby thing. It's just once once you have that certain level, you can't go back. Right. You know, once once you get a cup of that Andre's heart heart coffee, yeah. you can't go drink at fucking Starbucks. No. Yeah, but it, we were talking before the pod started, and, and you know, you were talking about what gets you excited about what you're doing in the kitchen, and you mentioned vegetables. Mm-hmm. And to hear you talk about potatoes, it's it's one of those things where when you get inspired and you get creative about something and you find that a lot of that stems from what you're sourcing and the raw ingredients you're using, you're not going to be as excited about that same dish with a different potato. You're going to be more excited about a new dish and then come back a year and a half later with even more enthusiasm because you missed it. And the potatoes are back. And I mean, I think it speaks to creativity as a chef and it also speaks to a standard that the restaurant has as far as what's going on the menu. So it Absolutely. might be annoying for customers that get used to great things, but, you know, hopefully they're smart enough to keep in mind that it's in their best interest to trust what's going on the menu. Right. I mean, the interesting thing, I was thinking about this last night when I was driving home. I was saying, like, I, I've never worked in a restaurant where the menu changes so frequently. Mm. I mean, all throughout the, the bar and lounge and in the dining room, we did the math one night because we have, like, uh, spreadsheets with all of the dishes like detailed for the prep list and there's one tab that has all of the old dishes on it so basically there's the graveyard the graveyard um, and <laughs> in there that we we'll let us go in there soon huh oh no <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we're gonna get back to the mufaletta sounds good um, we did the account of the number of services that the restaurants open per year versus the number of dishes since the time that I started putting dishes on the menu. It's like every four to five days a new dish goes on the menu. Jesus. Mathematically. I mean, sometimes we'll put like three on in a week, and sometimes right. it'll be like but zero. But yeah, every four to five service days there's a new dish on the menu. Keep you on your toes. Yeah, keeps the cooks on their toes. I mean, God bless well, them. Those I can't guys imagine are hardcore. every week learning a new dish. And then it's one. gone like two weeks later. Yeah. But there's a little grass is always greener. Would you rather have that, or would you rather just be cooking the same shit over and over again, being stagnant? (laughs) I don't know, man. No, no, I'm kidding. You know, because I feel like there's both sides. But yeah, I'll just stay at. I'm just gonna stay at Spaghetti Factory Mm -hmm. (laughs) because all you know the people that work for you as well, they have ideas about stuff. Sure, and they're pitching ideas to you, like, hey, chef, what if we, you know, and let me try it. It might make it on the menu, like. That's the stuff that keeps people going. That's encouraged, absolutely. Like we always say, hey, you guys want you guys find the time to work on something, work on it, we'll taste it, we'll refine it, and maybe it'll make it on, maybe it won't, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, several of our cooks have gotten elements of dishes on the menus, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's cool. You just give them an element, don't you? You don't give them what? the whole thing. Sorry to completely derail this podcast. <laughs> so this might get edited out. Um, wasn't was there still a spaghetti? There was a spaghetti factory when we lived in LA, right? There's like 2005. There's, there's one like in San Gabriel Valley. There's still one in San Gabriel Valley. Yeah, you can. Have you ever been to a spaghetti factory? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yes. I just haven't thought of one for so long. It's called it just technically the, jumped off the, dome. the old spaghetti. The factor. old spaghetti factory. I don't think it's good, but I have fond memories of it. All right, I'm writing a note to myself to only use the spaghetti factory from now. Yeah, it used on. to be on Sunset. Yeah, like near. Gardens, whatever that dance, Florentine Gardens. Florentine Gardens, right? Mm-hmm. It was right, kind of near that strip. It was close. Yeah, it was right by there. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Anyways, just hadn't thought of spaghetti factory in so long. Factory. Such a classic Italian rustic eatery. Mm-hmm. He's trying to carbo load. Yeah. Before uh, before we move on, could you explain that p- potato dish that you were talking about before? Sure. Yeah. So he's like, it's just a baked potato. <laughs> I just know that's it. What it's a steamed potato, potato with chives. <laughs> it's a boiled potato. What kind of uh, what kind of potato is it? So they're baby German butterball potatoes. Baby German butterball. How? Mm-hmm. What's the size of them? They look like you kumquat. They're bigger than a kumquat. They're probably the size of like uh, calamansi. God damn it. Uh, like a calamansi or like... Don't let them walk you down that line. Or, uh, or I would say like a half dollar. Yeah, okay. They're pretty small. An adult man's testicle? Well, that's variable. You know, they all, they're all different sizes. Smart answer. Um, Man knows. <laughs> can't catch him slipping. Um, uh, can't slip. Uh, so then we take that... Like a would, bliss potato size? About the size of an ice cube? 
All right, we're moving we're on. Um, uh, yeah, like a like a, one of those red lists, but a small one. Yeah. Um, and they had like a russet skin, so it's kind of like that crackly like skin. Oh wow! You know? um, so we'd like po- the dark brown gray kind. Yeah, that kind of looks like it's cracking. Mm-hmm. A little dusty. They so were definitely dusty because they're dry farmed. Mm. So they would they would be like super dusty when we get them and wash them. Does that mean the skin gets really crispy because there's less moisture if it's dry farmed and that kind of thing? Well, or maybe no. Definitely concentrates the flavor because okay. like any like James will grow shishitos. Oh. Everyone loves shishitos. Mm-hmm. Like the fun mm. the French fry of peppers. It is. You know? It's like <laughs> That's uh, a great description. Yeah. You just you just snack them. My but, favorite. Yeah, they sometimes they're like oh roulette peppers cuz sometimes they're hot. Yeah. A lot of his were really hot. Spinning the cylinder. Yeah, oh, because he had a he had a higher percentage of spicy boys because he did not irrigate with anything but rainwater, so they were starving on the plant. Basically, he controls it in a way that, like, yeah. they actually survive. But it's because they were struggling, the capsum would concentrate, yeah, and they'd be like, "Whoa!" Like hotter than a Serrano, they'd blow your head off. Ooh, like, really? Damn, really wild. Party food. So he can he can he can breed them to be spicier in a way. I and guess his farming practice allows for spicier and stronger flavor. I feel like if you can figure out a way to genetically breed the the spiciness out of the shishito, that could no. really be lucrative to no. some. Because I mean, people love this. Like you said, it's the French fry. But what if every one in ten French fries was spicy as hell? Yeah, half yeah, see, the country under- would yeah. stop eating them. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying for sure. But they would also then want you know something spicy with it. It's so weird the the spicy thing. Mm-hmm. You know. But so the potatoes were cooked in corpouillon, which is basically a short stock made from mirepoix and lemon and wine. And then what kind of so, wine? White wine? White wine. I don't okay. know this stock. Corpouillon? So yeah. corpouillon means short stock. Okay. Like, uh, so there's co- no protein cooked. in it? No, it's like a vegetable. It's a poaching liquid typically. Cool. So it's carrots, onions, celery, um, black peppercorn, lemon skin, lemon juice, white wine, and water. You bring it up to... A boil, cook it for one minute. To no remove. bay leaf. No bay leaf. Okay. Not in that one. It's your funeral. Yeah, I'm, I'm going down. Don't listen down. to him. Keep Don't going. To me. Okay, so, <coughs> so you boil them in that. And then um, boil it and then let it cool completely. Mm-hmm. Add a certain percentage of salt. And then we brought the potatoes up to a boil and then simmered them until they float. And once they float, we shut it off and let it sit for 20 minutes and then drain them. You have to oh. cook them a day ahead of time because... You cool them to room temperature and then cool them in the refrigerator. If you mm. just cool them down, then the starch doesn't reset. So when you cut them, they're very gooey. Mm. You know, so you like let it cool down completely mm-hmm. and then refrigerate them. The starch will like interlock back together, mm-hmm. and when you cut them, they'll be very smooth. And, and we, does the outside of the potato get that kind of like salty-looking white crust on the outside? No, we don't put that much salt in the okay. in the liquid. And then the potatoes are seared on a plancha, so like a flat griddle. In clarified butter. You cut them in half before you do that? Yes, they cut in half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the cut su- surface is what's seared. So the backside mm-hmm. actually doesn't like get crispy, but it's dried out because of the way that the potatoes are farmed. And then Clarified butter. Clarified butter. Then we made an aioli out of um, uh, garlic, malt vinegar, uh, mm. dashi, so mm. smoked tuna stock, mm. and then an oil that's infused with katsobushi, which is the dried tuna that you make dashi with mm-hmm. and uh furikake so the rice seasoning with sesame seeds and yeah. uh nori yeah and all the fun stuff and then that was served with uh potatoes then we great dropped shaved bonito flakes and parmesan on top and served with mustard greens dressed in red wine vinegar wow so it's like a, it's a great dish it's like a really uh sexy french fry yeah for sure mm. yeah i'm glad i asked you can uh Got to wait for those potatoes to make them again, though. <laughs> no, uh, no halfway crooks. You can't use a shitty potato for that dish. No, I mean it's just the texture and flavor is so unique and special that we we I've done it with other potatoes and it's mostly the texture due to the far, like our our GM described James's the cucumbers that he grows is like coiled and tight like that's kind of like how the potato texture felt. It's mm. like it would be creamy and nice. But it was like a very chewy, creamy, very mm-hmm. unique. Can't explain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the fun <laughs> part of talking to farmers that somehow defy every other type of that produce you've ever tried. It's mm-hmm. like, why does your cucumber grow like a coiled sausage? 
I was like, I don't know, I'm the only guy in the entire world that's got them, but, you know, that's what mm-hmm. I do here. And you're like, okay, well, <laughs> I guess I'll just only use you, and if you don't call me back, I have to change my entire menu. Cool. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had that occur. Like, there was a point in time we used, uh, we still use it now because the farmer has more success growing it, but we use an herb called Lovage, and, mm-hmm. like, when he first started growing it, there was, like, the bunches were tiny. And we're like, oh, I need, like, 20 bunches. And now the bunches are huge and the leaves are much bigger and, you know, we can keep it on the menu longer. Mm. Yeah, um, Lovage is not quite as popular in California as it is in the south or, yeah, or the Love, east coast. Lovage is cool. It is cool. You, like, but you hardly ever see it at the markets, huh? Yeah. I guess in Santa Monica it's a little different. because you're buying all of it. I'm buying all the lovage. <laughs> Son of a bitch. So you're, uh, so you're going to Santa Monica Farmer's Market every week on the Wednesday mornings, huh? I go on Wednesdays, and uh, Jeff, um, one of the sous chefs, goes on Saturdays. And then there's times I go on Sunday to the market in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I've seen you there a couple times, I think. Very dedicated farmer's life, farmer market life. Damn. Yeah, the Sunday Hollywood Farmer's Market, well, we're in those Vilas, so that's a lot easier than going on a Wednesday to Santa yeah. Monica. It's a it's a wild place. The Sunday market's interesting. Uh, a lot of baby carriages. <laughs> yes, many. They have any baby carriages in Santa Monica? Just kidding. That's all it is. They got less on a Wednesday morning. Yeah, Wednesday's yeah. like Sunday, sh- like weekend warrior the stroll. Like Carol, oh my God, I haven't seen you. Get out of my way, Carol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but on Wednesdays it's just kind of like unless you are an executive chef, get the fuck out of here because I need this more than you, and I'm here at five forty-five. <laughs> and if That's you fair. get my fucking pluots. My week is going to be screwed, and I'm yeah. like, I'm just going to make it and put it on Instagram. Yeah, that's definitely... Uh, which, is a, which is fine. Yeah. Um, so after you've been working, let's continue this journey. Then you move out to L.A. 2007 mm-hmm. to, pers- to, LA. to pursue a career in the fine arts of acting. Yes, I had acted as a, <clears throat> as a younger person. I started mm-hmm. professionally acting when I was 11 and did some... some Work doing that. Where can we see? Where can we see you popping up? I was in a movie called "Me and You and Everyone We Know" by Miranda July. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was the older brother of the two younger kids. Oh okay, um, I remember that movie. A friend of mine was a first AC on that. Really? Yeah, my friend Adam Miller. I'm sure if I saw him, I'd well, I, I mean, I was there every day. Like, on yeah, set, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Like, I'm sure. Set life, baby. Set mm-hmm. life. Because <laughs> um, that was shot in New York, yeah. That was shot here. Was that shot here? It was shot in the Valley. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's my first time to California. It was very exciting. That's crazy. I bet. Um, Yeah. So I did that and then just some pilots and commercials and stuff like that. So so everyone listening is like, cool, your first job was in a featured film. Great. (laughs) (laughs) I did an A&PM commercial once. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not featured. I uh, didn't get it. Yeah. (laughs) I auditioned. Okay, so you moved out here. You did that movie. No, I did that movie when I was younger. When you were, oh, when, when you were I was younger. still in like uh, high school. Age. Oh, okay. And then I moved out here to pursue, to continue to pursue acting, and I did like a, a movie when I first came out here, and then nothing really, really low budget kind of thing, and then mm-hmm. nothing was happening. I was getting kind of antsy. I, I wanted to, you know, do something that kind of had a daily give back to me as someone who was you weren't a very good dj so you had to figure something yeah out. my djs you know i just can't do it <laughs> um so i applied for a job at many places but one of them was nobu in in hollywood mm-hmm. and i got the position mm-hmm. i always say that i lied my way into that job yeah because i was like oh they're like are you working grill and i was like i had worked grill at another restaurant but i was like oh yeah i can handle it no problem and, you know, that's a different situation. Yeah. So well, I, I guess it's easier to fake your way onto the grill at Nobu than it is to, like, make rice or cut fish. Yeah, I was like, I'm not a sushi chef. I was like, I'm, I can't, like, I don't know how to make croissants. I couldn't lie about that. But. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, so, you're, so you're at Nobu, but you're grilling. I started on the grill, and then they quickly moved me to tempura. Because, you know, you go from the girl to the fry station and you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then I worked my way back up to lead line cook at the restaurant mm. as in my time that I was there. Oh, wow. After that, um, I, uh, I applied for a job via my chef, Alex, at the time. Um, he's like, you know, the guys from Animal are opening a new restaurant. You should apply. Mm. So I applied. John and Vinny. John and Vinny, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, I applied. I, I, I went home that night. Got on my computer, wrote up a resume like 
pimped it out as hard as I could with the little experience I had. Just like, oh, if I write lots of interesting things, mm-hmm. like my responsibilities. And then I, uh, the next morning, I, I, drew, I was off the next day. So I drove to Animal right I, you know, when the hostess was there, like you know, 2 o'clock. And I'm like, screaming <laughs> like, in front of – there's a gate in front of the door. Oh, so you yeah. can't even like, knock on the front door. So I'm like jumping in front of it, like trying to get her attention, and she's coming right out. next door to the Supreme Store on Fairfax. Absolutely, yeah. For our listeners at home who want to get the picture painted for them, and there I was jumping up and down in front of the <laughs> animal. And she was like, "Supreme is next door, <laughs> sir." I don't, I don't even think Supreme was open then. Oh, really? That was like feel old yet, listeners? It was like seven years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was when like the hundreds opened when I was. Moving from Animal to Son of a Gun. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So, yeah, like that strip was a completely different animal. So this oh, was, what, sure. like 2009? Yeah, 2009. Okay, 2009. Um, so, yeah, I was like 21. Wait, hold on. What, how do I do math? Yeah, I was 21. <laughs> um, so then I applied, and uh, they called me in for an interview. Um, I did a, an interview I cooked for them. I did a, and then they said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you as part of the team. We're going to start you off at Animal. Um and, you know, when Son of a Gun's up and going, we'll have a movie over there. Mm-hmm. And in my time working for them, I, I started just, like, learning at Animal and did everything prep, cooking, line cooking, everything. And then I, by the time I left Son of a Gun, I was a sous chef. Um, I start like, when the restaurant opened, I was a sous chef, and there was another guy named Daniel who did the mornings and I did the nighttime. And then uh, I left there. I was kind of unsure of what I was going to do. I thought about maybe moving up to San Francisco to try to do, like, you know, chase a Michelin star kind of you know, mm-hmm. try to work at Bennu because the C- CDC of Animal had worked with Corey Lee at the French Laundry. Mm-hmm. And he's like, mm-hmm. you know, I can get you an interview if you're interested. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, and a lot of stuff was going on. So it's a good sign that everybody you're working with wants to help you out. It's mm-hmm. people, speaks volumes. People, people are nice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I ended up. I was in Griffith Park at Trails with my friend Jarrett, and there was. Uh, we were just thinking and talking about what what should I do, you know? And he's like, well, why don't you just, like, do, a, like, a supper club kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know? Like, just do and that, like, up. like like what, what Wolf's Mouth does. And I was yeah. like, I worked with Craig for a little while, and I was like, hey, hey, he, he does a great job. Like, I could see myself doing something like this. So I actually lived on Beachwood right off Franklin back then mm-hmm. and I in a one-bedroom apartment, and I was like, you know, we're going to start doing this thing. We're going to start this this thing called the Vagrancy Project, where every dinner we do a dinner at someone else's house that volunteers, and they invite over these guests that we get through our mailing list. And, well, we didn't have a mailing list in the beginning. We had It was like, you know, all friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it started, we did one dinner at my apartment, and then we did another dinner, and we got a little write-up in uh, the LA Weekly. And then we did a third dinner, and... Jeff Miller from Thrillist Roommate came, and then he wrote something on Thrillist the next day, and then I had to go to New York um, for something else, and I opened up my iPhone, and it crashed because we got so many emails from the Thrillist article. Wow. And then we were just, like, destroyed. Like, mm. it was all of a sudden we went from, like, hey, do you want to, like, come to my house and, like, maybe give me some money to have a long-form dinner? <laughs> to, like, people were like, how do I find out about this place? You know, so we would. So it was too much. It was. It was you a lot. You were unable to handle the the demand. Well, we we but exciting. We were, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, next thing we did, we went back to my cousin's place where I was staying, opened up our computer, and went on, you know, the Gmail account we had, and like, we just started answering all of the emails back. Myself and my business partner Aubrey at the time, we were just sort of like, okay, we're gonna just answer every single email, say thank you for your request. It was like eight thousand emails, and so he oh, and I were just like going through. He would go, and then I would go, and, like, I'm doing it from my phone. He's doing it from the computer. Just, like, all day, this is what we did. And then we said, okay, so this is this. We would release the schedule to the whole mailing list and then say, you know, it's a first-come, 1st first serve thing. We only have this many slots per month, 12 on Friday, 12 on Saturday. So basically we only had, like, you know, <laughs> 96 slots a month. So then the so you're doing 24... 24- 24 reservation availability per week, mm-hmm. and you have 8,000 people wanting in. Yeah, so that was, you know, people. some people got super pissed off. Like, how come I can never get in? I'm like, yeah. you have to understand that there's a lot of people trying to do this. Like, take me out of this mailing list. You guys suck. I was like, 
I can't like you emailed back five days after he sent you out the thing, man. Like yeah. literally, people would email back ninety seconds after we send the mm. email out they with won. a photo of their credit card. They were ready like, to go. Bleh. Yeah, hundred percent. And so we did that for a while, and in the LA Weekly interview, I, um, that you know kind of helped get us all where we were. They, uh, I had this like three phase plan of having the pop up and then a pop up in a restaurant. And then open up my own restaurant, um, which is still part of the plan for me, but it's, mm-hmm. it's obviously morphed into something completely different. Mm-hmm. But then um, the, the bar of the Holloway used to be a restaurant called the Alston Yacht Club. Mm-hmm. Bill DeDonna. I ate there. Owner, I remember it. Yeah. One of the owners. Um, a couple con- of years? It was kind of short-lived, right? But it, was well, there? Alston Yacht Club was there for a little while. And then after that... Bill and Charlie, the owners, I did a pop-up at the Austin Yacht Club on Mondays and Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they closed, did some refurbishment and reopened as a restaurant called Alumet, mm-hmm. where I was the chef. Mm-hmm. That was when I was 24. We opened that restaurant. Um, and I ate there. Yeah, that restaurant yeah, was open for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it closed in June. And then I moved to Healdsburg. I worked at a place called The Shed. And then I moved to the Caribbean and did some consultation work down there. Whoa. Consultation. Consultation in, uh, <laughs> in St. Kitts. And then after that job kind of ended, I contacted a few people in L.A. and said, do you, do you know anyone looking for you know, anything from an executive sous chef to a CDC to an executive chef? And they said, hey, two people said, Michael's is looking. So I got in touch with Michael and mm-hmm. came out, and I was visiting L.A. and met with him and Chaz, his son. And we went to the farmer's market. Walked around, talked to the farmers, came back for an interview, and one thing led to another. I got a job offer, and then I started working two years ago on August 1st. So it's basically two years ago, mm-hmm. two years and three days ago I started working there. And and Michael's, if you are listening and you don't know about it, it's, like it's been there since, like, 79, probably? Mm-hmm. 79. And it was one of the forefront restaurants of the L.A. kind of, you know, the haute cuisine mm-hmm. scene of the 80s. Um, that was like the spot to be at, that right? Was spot. Who was the who was the chef back then that was really killing it? Well, Jonathan Waxman, yeah, Waxman was right. started and as the first chef, Michael obviously is yeah. chef. Um, Waxman was there. Mark Peel worked there. Nancy Silverton was there. She started as a cashier and then she moved over to work wow. in the pastry. And then Mark Peel and Nancy went to Spago, and then they opened Campanile after that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of. Great people have come through. So that back kitchen. back when you know we take it for granted now because there's 500 great restaurants in LA, but back then that was sort of like one of the only spots in town to get that kind of Absolutely. new type of cooking that was going on cuisine. around the world. You get to have like this was the LA version of what was going on in yeah. New York or or Europe. Absolutely. And now you you guys are doing kind of the your your higher-end, more intricate menu in the dining room, and then you also have a full kind of bar menu that's a little bit more casual as casual. well, right? yeah. And I think and I, there seems to be a, a strong separation between the two, which, which I thought was really cool, where, like, the bar menu stuff, if you order something off the menu, it, it appears the way just it appears, with, but it's not like a fussy... Chefy dish with with herbs sprinkled all over it right. and tweezer stuff. It's just like that's what it is. It's a calamari, Nashville hot calamari, or the calamari is just on a plate with a with a cup of the with the dipping sauce next to it. Yeah, and that's it. No, not even a little parsley sprinkled on top or anything. It's just like that's what you get. Yeah, because and it, is that um, happening for any reason? Like, is it kind of a a nice release for you to just do normal looking food as opposed to it's fun i mean it's all delicious like everything you know we were talking about you know weighing everything out everything's weighed out you know we make a a buttermilk and mustard batter for the fried chicken i'm fried chicken what i'm talking about the calamari Mm -hmm. and we weigh that out and we make like seasoned flour and we do everything properly we source everything nicely um, but it's just it's just fun. I mean, you want people to come in and that you walk into the restaurant through this small atrium with art and cacti, cacti in it, and then you walk into the bar in a lounge. And when there's people in there grubbing and having a good time, you're like, wow, this place is alive. Mm-hmm. So one of the functions of that more casual menu is to get people to start that energy early on in the night so that when you come in to eat at 7 o'clock 
on a Thursday. It just it, it feels jamming, but then you get back into the garden and it's fun and there's wine and you know beautiful mm-hmm. plants and everything. There's this there's this party vibe which mm-hmm. Michael is you know like great party is something that Michael always says. You know, yeah. it's just like he wants to, to be that energy in the mm-hmm. restaurant. Yeah, and I love that because I think kind of gone gone are the days where that's. That's a, a priority for a, an owner mm-hmm. because I feel like back in the day that was yeah everywhere. You, like wanted, you wanted the the energy in the room. It had to be a, a scene. There had to be interesting people who are dressed interestingly and make it the, sexy, baby. Make it sexy. You know the music maybe a little bit louder than the other spots, but it's not mm. you know it's not offensive. It's just right. It's a party. It's a party. I mean, it's fun. I mean, and then the cool thing is, it's you know a lot of people. Now they'll come in early and they'll eat some of the bar stuff and then they'll go to the back and have, you know, a more formal dinner, which mm-hmm. is a fun way to eat. Or you could do it in reverse. You could eat in the front and then come to the, eat in the back and then come to the front for dessert and like mm-hmm. Amari, Cocktails. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So we really like our real estate affords an incredible experience mm-hmm. and the diversity in the menu allows for a really fun experience for the guests as well mm-hmm. you guys have um and you had something on the menu very recently the squishy fried chicken sandwich yes squishy which fried is sandwich. uh i think it's a it's a it's a smart move as you know the world seems to be obsessed with fried chicken sandwiches yeah how do you reinvent the wheel on that so and nobody really has been able to do something that's truly different than just like what if you make it a, a Thai version and you put some fish sauce on it, or what if you make it a right. whatever a Japanese version you put some QP instead of chipotle aioli or whatever. Yeah. But you really you really freaked it, is what I'm saying. We we, we got nasty with it, so we uh, <laughs> we take uh, chicken thighs and we cook we salt them, skin them, uh, boneless skinless. Boneless, skinless. Yeah, and then we salt them with a certain percentage of salt mm-hmm. overnight, and then we... What's the percentage? 1.5% of the weight of the <laughs> chicken. Um, and then we uh, cook them in duck fat. Um, confit them in duck fat? Confit them in duck fat. Okay. Uh, very low for a while. And then that percentage is like the... That's a money percentage for seasoning things, mm-hmm. 1.5%. Like if you cook beans... 1.5% mm. of the weight of the water should be salt to perfectly season the beans. <laughs> like all these kinds of, there's all, you know, if I do a sausage, 1.625% of the weight of the meat and fat will be salt because sausages <laughs> should be a little saltier, I think, than mm-hmm. like a regular piece of meat. If, if yeah. For the listeners at home, if you could look at Andre's face, it's like, it's, it's, such, a, it. it's such a simple, but I'm the same way. Like, just, I, I didn't, I was asking what's the percentage of salt to meat ratio not even that serious just sort of as a joke just because i know that you knew the number off the top of your head because you're a you're a freak yeah but you know that's that could have been maybe the most interesting or useful piece of cooking information that we've shared on this show yeah, just I love like the that. book ratio, and oh, yeah. uh, that isn't in ratio. One point five—that's the uh, magic that's the god code yeah. for mm-hmm. for seasoning things. Yeah. Because that's one thing of like seasoning food is such a you know such a subjective thing, and mm-hmm. everyone has you know Andre likes salt a lot, so he'll he'll put a little bit more I salt on other things. And I over acid things, but that's how I like to eat. Mm-hmm. But that's how a lot of people like to eat, and yeah. then some people are like, "Oh, it's too salty. I don't like it." And some people are just like, how do I know that this is, you know, like this tastes good and they have no idea in their mind that if there was a little bit more salt, it would taste amazing. Right. And if they add a little bit more salt, it's ruined. Right. Mm-hmm. Like people don't know that's, you know, it's like, you know, make me an omelet so I could really see how well, of a, mm. how good of a cook you are. But like, I think that the salt level is another thing of like yeah. pure finesse and technique to know that. But you've sort of quantified that into a percentage. Right, for, for certain things that we do. I mean, when we season steaks at the restaurant, we just season them. You know, right, right, for right. For things that are a little more mathematical and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, process-based, we do have the weights. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1.5 salt, you confit them for a long fat. time in duck fat. Yeah. So they're cooked all the way through before they're breaded. Yeah. yeah. Then, mm-hmm. we, then we take them out, we drain them from the duck fat, mm-hmm. and we... we Put them in a. Like pour a, that duck fat down the drain. No, we we uh, we save it use it for other things, mm-hmm. um, and then definitely not down the drain. Definitely into like the. Just a little oil bin. joke, baby. Yeah, um, and then we uh, take the the meat and we shred the meat, pack it into. You shred it by uh, hand, or you use a machine? We or? use a uh, like a, a Hobart, like a like a giant KitchenAid mixer. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. To basically beat the, the meat up into like shreds. Mm-hmm. And then we pack it into a pan. Um, like a baking sheet. Yeah, like, like a hotel pan. So like a, like a, like a okay. roasting tray. Mm-hmm. And then weigh it down with another tray on top. And then it's like number 10 cans. Mm-hmm. Like tomato sauce cans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, overnight, it would cut into bricks. Um, at that point, like... So, the, it, so it, it sort of resembles like a sheet of polenta or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like a sheet of polenta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you would then cut into your shapes. and Cut them into squares. Mm-hmm. Cut them you know, through the equator. Stuff them with two slices of sharp... Cheddar, and then we bread them, flour, buttermilk, and panko, and then we deep fry them. Mm-hmm. And then we put them on a grilled bun that uh, we don't make. Um, <laughs> that's the only, like, the only thing in the restaurant we don't make uh-huh. is this bun for but, this. Uh, but I th- I'm sure... I think the most common thing in any restaurant that prides itself you know, on, on quality and sourcing... It's always like the slider or the fried chicken sandwich or the hamburger that's like, yeah, we, we get our rolls mm-hmm. from this famous place. We get our rolls from here. We get our rolls yeah. from there. It's all like, that's always the number yeah. one ingredient where it's like, can't do it better. No, I mean, we, we, make, we make two breads at the restaurant. We make yeah. the focaccia yeah, and, and the I'm sour. Sure, yeah. like, I'm sure you tried like, to make your own yeah, buns. It's, it's I'm it's sure never you gonna tested be better than that. Yeah. 20 different you know, yeah. manufactured buns, artisanal down to smart and final. Yeah. And you're like, okay, this is the one that I like the most. Yeah, exactly. It's because like, for that kind of thing, there's such a nostalgia attached to it where you're like, very often I'm eating a hot dog or a hamburger. And I'm like, I really wish this was just a regular ass bun. Yeah, because yeah, that's I don't what ever I want. see a hamburger on ciabatta again for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, I'll be yeah. a real happy man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Some that. things just have to be a shitty. Yeah. It's just, that's just the way it works. But I, yeah. I'm glad that you used a sharp cheddar and not the American cheese slice. Yeah, we. The, ch- the cheddar is good. Which some people could disagree with me about. No. I like American no. cheese on a burger, but yeah. Like yeah. for no. this, no. Cheddar is the way to go. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you batter and fry it, and then by the time it's stuffed with the cheese, battered and fried, this, it's, you know, it's about two inches thick, probably. Yeah, it's big. It's a big son of a bitch. Yeah. So then you got the, uh, you got the buns that you do not make. Right. You got the, the iceberg lettuce. With a dress with a seasoned olive oil that has uh, fish sauce, chili, oh. uh, lemon skin, and garlic, and olive oil in it. And oh. then we make a barbecue spiced aioli with malt, vinegar, garlic, uh, barbecue spices that we mix. Uh, and then we mix that into kewpie. Mm. Some Japanese mayonnaise. And you're, mm-hmm. not, uh, and you're not shy with that either. The mayonnaise? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-mm. Which it Never should not be shy. Be. With mayonnaise. And then when you get it, so it looks just like a ridiculous-ass creation, yeah. like you'd see at KFC or something like yeah. that, but it's not squished and, it's, you know, it's, hand, it's been handled with care. Very, yeah. And then when it arrives at your plate, your, at your desk, <laughs> at your table, you're encouraged to sort of squish the entire it. thing down, s- shooting the oozing cheese <laughs> out and... And it's a whole thing. If you go to the Michael's uh, Instagram page, there's a video that shows the whole process. But it's, and then the way it tastes is just a. It's really hard to put your finger on it, but it's kind of like you get a lot of essence of the uh, nostalgia of the fillet of fish sandwich at McDonald's, just in the way that the bun and the iceberg and the the crispy uh, the panko kind of vibe is happening. But then the other flavors going on. It's just. It's hard to it's hard to put it put your finger on it, but it's it's addicting, and you and it's the type of thing where you're eating it and you're like, this is going to make me feel not the best after I right. eat it, but you just can't stop, you know. But it's big too. It's maybe big. a beer with that. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. And you also, uh, you know, the the restaurant Michaels is a very kind of breezy indoor outdoor. You know, beachy kind of vibe. You know, it looks like a Steely Dan album cover or something back there. It does. In in the best way possible. Yeah, no, I, I get you. And yeah. then on the bar menu, when I I, I see a, a muffaletta sandwich, which seems like the you know the last thing you'd see on a menu at this type of restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it does uh, it doesn't strike you as kind of an al fresco beachside item, but then. That, that may have been the best mufflet I've ever had in my life. Probably. Thank you. What do you and do you guys do you guys make that bread? Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we make that bread. It's so is a, that like a focaccia kind of vibe? It's a focaccia mm-hmm. that we make. It's a very demented focaccia recipe. That's not. It's incredibly 
high in moisture. Demented focaccia. Yeah, it's very high in moisture. It has sourdough starter in it. It has wine, honey, and olive oil in it, and water. Um, wine. Wine. What kind of wine? White wine. White wine. Whatever, like. We just use the open bottle that like, there's not enough left of. Right. So, um, That's wild. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And the texture is like squishy, but it gets crisp on the outside. Um, mm-hmm. And then we make, we make there's a torsion of pig's head inside. Mm-hmm. There's D-bone roll, wow. D-bone brine roll poach and slice the pig's head. And then there's a like city ham, so brined, smoked, and roasted ham. Then there's... Uh, mortadella, Swiss provolone, and olive spread that we make as well. Dang. Sounds great. It's it's good. It's very like true to form, like oily, salty, mm-hmm. uh, olivey, porky, <laughs> all the good stuff. It's yeah. super good. Um, and then I was just going. Do you have? Uh, I I was just going through the Instagram uh, and noticed that you guys have a, a chawamushi on there. We did. Or maybe for you a did. Long time, yeah. And that was some in the uh, traditional one with like soft soft shell crab or dungeness crab i think yeah dungeness, dungeness crab, crab and some other things but like i was trying to make some chawamushi for a while just just to see what it was like and it was i found it to be very hard to get that texture just the perfect way when were you steaming it or were you sous viding it steaming okay yeah we, uh, what, what what's what's a tip for a chawamushi to get that perfect kind of silky consistency. We cook it for 14 minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, so it was a pretty high steam, like not like full blast, but we set up a steamer, and then I would say it was about 75% of the full burner uh, mm-hmm. on a commercial stove. So you would probably, if you're at a home stove, you probably have to go all the way. Mm-hmm. And then we would... Um, Cover them with plastic wrap mm-hmm. and then poke two small holes in the plastic wrap to release steam so that it wouldn't drip back on itself as it cooked. Mm-hmm. And then just let it, let it rip uh, undisturbed for seven minutes. And then we would turn the pan like 180, mm-hmm. like spin it like you would bake brownies or something for the remaining seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Take them out, immediately uncover them and let them cool to room temperature. And then when you, uh, for listeners at home who don't know what that is, it's, it's typically egg that's been... Whipped with like a dashi broth, yeah, and then it's cooked, steamed lightly to get like a pudding-like consistency or like a soft tofu kind of vibe. Yeah, it's like a soft tofu. But I imagine you did. You, there was some other demented methods in the way yes. that you make your chawanmushi as <laughs> sure. well. Yeah, so our chawanmushi, the base of it was uh, coconut water from fresh coconuts. What the fuck? So we would take the coconut water um, from the young coconuts and strain it, and we would make. Uh, Kombu dashi, so dashi made with seaweed, out of the coconut water. But we would, mm-hmm. when we make kombu dashi at the restaurant, we use a certain amount of the seaweed, kombu. Mm-hmm. When we made this, we doubled the amount to increase the seafood f- flavor because mm-hmm. the coconut water is so sweet. And then yeah. after we steamed the crabs, um, we would clean all the meat out and then smash the shells and then make fortify that coconut kombu dashi with the crab shells mm-hmm. that had been rinsed and cleaned of all of the particulate and guts and stuff. Um, then we took that, strained it through a service napkin so it was very clean and there was no like, little particles of protein or anything in it. Added seasoned uh, regular dashi, so tuna dashi, mm-hmm. with um, soy and mirin that had had the alcohol cooked out of it. And then salt and then whipped that into eggs. Pass that again through a strainer, and then we would steam those guys. Mm. So Is that what you did when you made it? <laughs> Fuck no. <laughs> so it's really flavorful. It's Damn. incredible. Like it's 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 a solid. Like it's four hours mm-hmm. to make thirty two of them. Yeah, and it's also yeah. it's a it's a good example of when you're appropriating a, a dish that might be the single signature dish at something culturally specific like a Japanese restaurant or depending mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm just going to throw this on this menu with all these other really complicated preparations with mm-hmm. a lot of other dishes. I mean, it's just like it's such a commitment to a dish that would yeah. basically be the foundation of a whole restaurant. You're like, I'm just going to throw it on, see how yeah, it goes. Same, same as the mufaletta, just like, yeah. oh, we're just going to make our own pig head terrine. pig head. <laughs> And forgot. Yeah. Just on the side. 
It's a lot. Damn, son. Hope you guys don't use your, lose your main prep chef because, you know, oh, it man. sounds like <laughs> wow, yeah. you probably well, need that guy. Straight to the heart, man. Come yeah, on. you probably need that guy for some of those dishes. Um, oh, man. I was, uh, I was also thinking, you know, there, we're, we're sort of now living in a world of the child chef is not that uncommon. Like you see him popping up, there's Master Chef Junior yeah. and like you and then Flynn. And, you know, there's. A, there's sure. A, but I feel like you're kind of maybe the first example of the child chef who has grown up into an adult. And like the, I guess the first case study of what happens to a child chef. And you've been able to do it gracefully instead of just turn into like a monster person. Yeah, you haven't Thank flipped you. your vet yet. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Which is good. But I mean, I guess you kind of are the first person to start off at that young age and get that notoriety as, like, the super young chef mm. and then flow into adulthood in a, in a nice way. And I think that's probably really hard to do. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I, uh, I think the most important part is... Because when just... I was 19, I was a piece of shit. And you were, like, doing things you were cool. in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just... Uh, doesn't mean I wasn't a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was... In the kitchen, being a piece of shit. Um, I mean, obviously, you were a piece of shit. Yeah, too. I mean, I'm 19 yeah, years old. Right like, who, we can see. who is not a piece of shit? It's very clear to us you're a piece of shit. <laughs> Thank you. For the now, sake of the podcast. Answering this question much easier now that I've gotten that off my chest. Um, I think a lot of it is just remaining focused and understanding that when you're younger, you're, I, a lot of times I look back at old menus and old ideas and I'm like, wow, like, where did that come from? And, like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Or where did you get this idea from? Or That looks great. And then you think about all that stuff. And What on then, God's earth was I thinking well, about when I made this other dish? Other times you're like, that was really bad. Like, <laughs> deep-fried grapes. Just, like, <laughs> what was that shit about? You know, like, no batter, just, like, right in there. Seriously, I, what the fuck is up yeah, with deep-fried grapes? I'm laughing very hard, but I'm also laughing because as I heard that, my brain was like, is that a good idea? That might be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were, good pr- idea. they were pretty cool. While you're telling me it's a horrible idea, my brain's like, no, that's That sounds idea. like a deep that fire explosion to me. Sounds like really hot grape going in your mouth. You're like, oh, grape, ah! You know, like, no, that awful. sounds like oil burns. This grape yeah, is good, like but it could me. be hotter. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's just... What explodes in fryers that I can put in there right now? <laughs> yeah, grapes. Um, and then you just think about, you know, you have to constantly keep your, you know, keep your finger on the pulse of, you know, what am I doing? Am I happy? How do I, you know, not like, not like, am I happy go lucky? Yeah, but like, am I, am I, do I still love doing this? Mm-hmm. And then am I still inspired? And how do I remain inspired? And when do I need to take a break? Mm-hmm. And when do I need to keep going? And what is my plan? Because it's too easy to burn out in this industry. In any industry, if you work a lot, you will burn out. And I've definitely burned out a few times. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, I hate this shit. Like, I'm never going to cook. I'm going to figure something out. I don't care. Let's go work out the gap and like fold clothes for two years and who mm-hmm. cares, you know? Yep. Um, but then you have to remember, you know, I was asked the other day by someone like, why do you cook? Why did you start loving cooking? I was like, it's the surprise of eating something and you're just like, wow, how did they do that? Yeah. Even mm-hmm. if it's simple, like, you know, a, a, a roasted chicken that's just perfect, mm-hmm. you know, those memories, or, or it's some really complex dish at like El Salar de Con Rocas where there's just like all kinds of wild shit going on and you're like, okay, that's just amazing. But there is mm-hmm. that surprise and when I think about is there anything that I know that I would be happy doing day to day that would give that kind of reaction to someone, I don't think so. So yeah. that's why I come yeah. back to it all the time. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling too that, Miles was smart enough to maybe bury some bodies in the Caribbean <laughs> where those policemen are a little easier to grease, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. A little steam off over there outside the United Nations, yeah, yeah, the United States. When things get too hot, we head hey, down to the Caribbean. I mean, I... Um, this podcast is over. I gotta go. <laughs> well, Miles, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. People can uh, find... Your Instagram is Miles Cooks. Cooks. Miles Cooks. He That's does good. not really update it that much unless it really counts. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Unless I'm the sorghum to, is in season. Sorghum's happening. I mean, I I want <laughs> to be better at it because I love looking at Instagram. Yeah. But I also have, like, insane anxiety uh-huh. about, like, it, not even about likes, but more of, like, do I even like that picture at all? Like, right. myself, like, do I think that that's cool? Why am I even posting this? Yeah, Because exactly. I have to be a part of the machine? Exactly. Mm-hmm. I just, 
just, you know. Sounds like we need to get you a social media intern so you don't have to think about it. Oh, that'd be great. Post that shit for you. Listeners at home, if you want to be Miles' intern. DM me at some Miles Cooks. <laughs> hit, our, hit our boy in the DMs. Um, and, you know, do you have a girlfriend? Um, no, I, I you don't. I, no. Okay, I, then the DMs are wide open, guys. <laughs> Uh, and you can, and you should definitely go to my, uh, Miles's restaurant where he is the executive chef, Michael's in Santa Monica. Try the squishy fried chicken yes, sandwich, please. and and uh, go from there and explore everything. You can follow me on social media at them jeans. Andre Conapar has no social media. Uh, social the dot is the website where all the episodes are at. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You want to so give much. a shout out to anyone? Uh, shout out to everyone who. Uh, you know what? Actually, I'm going <laughs> to say this. Um, I want to give a shout out to everyone who is a cook, you know, in in the world. Like that's a, a toast I like to give sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, because there's, there's it's so much work and it's so hard and it requires so much dedication, focus, and just honesty. So thank you for everyone that's making pad thai or making you know three Michelin star food. Amen. Note to self: add in uh, sweet, dramatic music under that because that was a nice sentiment message to close us out for. We're gonna hit that with the music. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Thank you.